invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. We had a, a brief uh, visit by our missionary, Caleb Gibello, and had a wonderful report from him and a charge from the pulpit. And we're grateful now to get back to our text this morning. When we left Paul a couple of weeks ago, he had been arrested. In Paul's arrest, we covered that arrest and the angry mob that sought to beat him to death, quite literally, and he being rescued, of course, by Claudius Lysias, that tribune who hovers above the Temple Mount area with his thousand soldiers. They'd have a thousand soldiers under a tribune. The uh, centurions were in charge of hundreds, and the tribune over a thousand. And their great task, his great responsibility, of course, is to keep the peace in that Roman-occupied city and in that Judean region. So that's his job. And so they keep a close eye on what's going on below them, which is the uh, Temple Mount area where this riot broke out. And when Paul was seen coming into the temple area, of course, all the declarations were made. Men, come and help. This is the man who uh, is against his people. He's against Moses. He's against the law. He's against this very temple. And they start to pummel him, as you recall. So what this resulted in is quite remarkable. It resulted in the first of what will be six defenses that Paul will make, defenses for the Christian faith. He'll make them, of course, to the crowd on the steps as he's being taken away. He's rescued by the Romans, but put in chains, bound in chains, hand and foot. And now he's uh, ascending the stairs. There was a set of steps that the Roman uh, garrison could come down and transcend as they went to quell any kind of problems. And now they're rescuing him because the mob was so unruly that they couldn't make heads nor tails when they were doing as any, any authority figure would do is try to get the name and the charges against the one who's being pummeled to death. And it was one thing saying one, th someone saying one thing and another person saying another thing. He was a concophony of confusion. So not being able to ascertain or adjudicate the issue with any kind of reasonable uh, fairness or justice, he gathered Paul up and he's... They're taking him up the steps, and that's where we left off as we looked at uh, verse, the final chapter of verse uh, 22, or 21, excuse me, where he is saying, talking to the tribune, um, and he's saying after that, and you have to, in order to appreciate where we're going with this, you have to see what condition Paul is in. He's been beaten nearly to death. I mean, we had our first hour study on fear and worry. You, you could excuse him, couldn't you? If there was some fear going on, coursing through his veins. So I'm always struck. He's been in this situation before, Paul has. There's never any expression of fear in any of these circumstances. He's at the end of his third missionary journey. He's been He's been removed from synagogues before. There's been a plot on his life when he was leaving Corinth to come back with the collection to Jerusalem, which he's now done. He's been uh, pulled out of uh, Lystra, Timothy's hometown, and pummeled by those who followed up behind him uh, from 
uh, the church at Antioch and the uh, churches in the Pisidian area in that second missionary journey. They tracked him down and stoned him. You remember when we went through that. So no report of any kind of fear. And I think this goes well beyond something that just is due and owing to his machismo. This is, no, this is, it seems to go beyond what would be sort of garden variety Christian faith too that many of us would hope to have. There's something going on here. There's some way that Paul is able to endure the things he's enduring. And this is just the beginning. This is the first of six defenses, as I said, to the crowd. He'll make a defense next in chapter 23 before the council or the Sanhedrin. He's going to make a defense before both governors, first uh, uh, Felix and then Festus. He will make a defense before King Agrippa, and then he'll give his final defense uh, to a Jewish audience in Rome. Three different cities, Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome. Three cities involved, six defenses. So you have to wonder why these are left in the eternal record. And it isn't so that we can venerate a man. It's not. It's so that we can worship and glory in a sovereign God. I think it's important for all of us in, in studying these sections and being on this journey sort of exegetically with the apostle that we are careful not to overlook the obvious manifestation of the evidence of the sovereignty of God. And so, as we look at this, where he, he's making a defense, this is a, an, an apologetic, Paul's apologetic, because apologia is the term from the Greek, which has to do with making a speech that gives a defense over some charge made against you. So this was part, regular part, of ancient Greek uh, jurisprudence, where those who are charged would have an opportunity in the court to make their defense, their apologia. So that's where we get apology. It's making a defense for something we're charged with. It's quite simply that, whenever there's an accusation. So that's exactly what Paul's doing. So this, we saw it back in uh, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 33, with Alexander, when he sought to make a defense, it says in verse 33, to the crowd. He didn't get the opportunity. Crowds rarely give you that kind of a opportunity they really rarely afford you the opportunity let's all be quiet and have a seat and let him make his defense shall we no they're trying to kill him why because truth needs to shut its mouth the truth needs to be stopped by whatever means reasonableness is gone all of it is out the door and so that's what we see so but out of these challenges we're we're pressed with what is god trying to show us six defenses really i mean and we've already seen his conversion and and he's going to go over his conversion three times in these six defenses his conversion from chapter nine we went through it carefully we'll be going through it again just providentially that's where we are in the text and that's what he does but he asks the tribune he says i beg you in verse 39 of chapter 21 permit me to speak to this people and i mentioned last time that he's being respectful Now, I want you also to mark the wisdom and the strategy, the unmistakable strategy of the apostle. That's what we want to see. So this chapter will be broken down in five parts, and I'll get to that 
a minute. In verse 40 of 21, just leading up to our message today, and when he had given him permission, that is the tribune, Paul standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. What would be your motion with your hand if they just tried to kill you? He wants to get their attention because he has something very important to say to them. We might shake our fist at them or worse, call them names or whatever it might be if we were in the flesh. Paul clearly isn't. He doesn't ever seem to be, does he? Of course, that night in Corinth when he said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to speak anymore. Remember that? Jesus himself came and appeared to him. What a gracious Savior. What a gracious God shows up in the night place when it's quiet. And like a father to ascend, son says, don't stop talking. So we've seen Paul in his humanity. And he takes, it's, I believe, so powerful a moment as he's restored in that ministry of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, having met with him personally, as he did on the road to, to Damascus. He takes a Nazarite vow, remember? You're going to need to know that as we go forward. Because the, the what's, which, which, what should we call it? Let, the idea, for lack of a better word, the idea that James and the elders come up with when he shows up is, look, these, there's thousands of completed Jews now, and I prefer that term. These, are, these Christians are completed Jews. They've recognized who the Messiah is. But they're zealous. They're still zealous for the law. These are still first century Jews, whether they're Jews of the diaspora, that, of the dispersion, or they're Jews from Jerusalem. They're zealous for the law. They're going to take you apart. They think you're against the law and against Moses and, frankly, against the people. That's a threefold charge that they made against Stephen. And what did it cost Stephen in chapter 7? Exactly, his life. So he's doing that. He takes the suggestion that he pay the, the fees for the four that took the Nazarite vow, go with them into the temple. And what happens is they had seen Paul earlier in the city with Trophimus, who's clearly a Gentile. And now here's Paul going into an area that Gentiles clearly don't belong. He was clearly posted. It will cost you your life, Gentile, if you leave the court of the Gentiles and walk into the court of the women, clearly into the court of the men or the court of the uh, priesthood. So he was kicked out, Paul was kicked out, and the door was slammed. But these, these weren't Gentiles, and neither was Paul. So here he is, taking his advice. It didn't work. Would you be tempted? I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that I would be tempted, at least, to have a little bit of frustration and bitterness and disappointment in James and the elders. Look, I did what you said right? He's not against, he's not against Judaism. He took a Nazarite vow himself as a completed Jew. Not too much earlier, remember? Cut his hair, he's going to take it into the temple and all, follow through. These charges aren't right. But he motions with his hand and there's a great hush and he addresses them in the Hebrew language saying, brothers and fathers, same address, by the way, that Stephen had. Remarkable strategy here. He's going to begin something that I see running through the entirety of these first few points that I'll give you, which is his, the importance of identifying with the people you're talking to. And he does that in spades. He does that remarkably well. It's, it's stunning how well he does this. But we'll get to that. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make to you. 
That's our first verse. Now, let's read verse 1 through 6 this morning. But we're going to take Paul's apologetic is the entire chapter. It's too much for one message. So this will be blocked out into uh, whatever time we need to take. I've got it uh, broken down into five sections that I'll mention in a moment. So let's read the passage first together. So this is how it begins. So the tribune gives him the opportunity to speak to the crowd. He's already impressed with Paul. Do you know Greek? He's speaking perfectly polished Greek. He's being polite. May I speak? Do you mind? He's got their attention. He turns to the crowd. He's speaking in the Hebrew language, which, by the way, the Jewish language in Israel that first century was Aramaic. So he's speaking in fluent Aramaic. Now he had spoken in fluent, polished, high-end Greek to the tribune. He's, he's, he's getting their attention, you see? Mark the strategy, okay? It's not lost on us, or it shouldn't be. Verse 1, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let's try chapter 23. That was a good chapter, though, earlier. It was part of his journey. 22? You know, one of these days I'll get to the actual chapter. That's what I get for hopping around in the review, Right? Brothers and fathers, there it is. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that, he was addressing them in the Hebrew language. They became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. Mark that. I'm a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Let's stop there. Father, thank you for this apology. Thank you for this apologetic that you've given us throughout the remaining chapters of Acts that we too might benefit in many ways, in a practical way, in our Christian life, but also... Uh, in a way that benefits our evangel, our call to evangelize. May we be so familiar with a skillful form of presenting the gospel, so convinced in your sovereignty over all of these things that it becomes natural to us to make effective gospel presentations. We do that, that you would be honored and glorified as always. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we're seeing here in this chapter with this apologetic is a manifestation of God's sovereignty and the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. That's what it will be. That's where we're going. Here's how it breaks down. First, we're going to look at Paul's credentials, verses 1 to 5. But remember, what I want you to see as an overarching thread in, through this entire apologetic is God's sovereignty and we will support that in scripture so Paul's credentials verse 1 to 5 God sovereignly creates he created 
Paul, he gave him his resume, if you will. He is sovereign over his entire life. And we'll look at that as we get to it here this morning. And second will be Paul's conversion, verses 6 to 11. That's God sovereignly elects. As we review his conversion experience, we're going to see the sovereignty of God there as well. Number three, God, uh, Paul's contact. This is Ananias, of course. God arranges that. Verse 12 to 16, this is God sovereignly connects. I refer to it often in, in ordinary parlance with you all as God's intersections. He allows us with, to intersect with people. These aren't random meetings that you're having with people who just you happen to see at Walmart or you happen to sit next to at work or who happen to be your cousin or who happen to be your neighbor. These are the orchestrations of a brilliantly wise, remarkably sovereign God. That's what we want to keep our eye on as we continue through. Fourth, we'll look at Paul's commission Verse 17 to 21, this is God sovereignly directs. So he doesn't just leave you converted. He gives you direction. He gave Paul direction. He gives all of us direction. And he sovereignly appoints that direction in the things that we either succeed in or, or fail at. And fifth and finally, Paul's conflict. This is when he ends his apologetic and they're with him all the way up to one point. And that's when he meant, happens to mention that Christ has called him to a ministry to whom? That's, that's, the, that's the word. That's the word. This is God sovereignly protects because we see God protecting the great apostle even while there they go again exploding. So let's... Let's look at this. First of all, Paul's credentials, verse 1 through 5, that we've just read from chapter 22. I want to read the definition of credentials. We, we all have sort of a rudimentary understanding of what that word means, but I want you to see how perfectly this word defined applies to Paul and his strategy in his making a defense. This is what he leads with, are his, you could say, credentials, defined as a qualification or achievement, personal quality, or aspect of a person's background, typically used to indicate that they are suitable for something. In other words, God knows what he's doing in selecting Paul for this particular task. Because all of the things they're attacking him on, he fully and handily refutes in his background and who he is, and every, I won't say everybody, but he says in one place, all of the Jews know this. They know this about me. So he leaves them, and this is you and I to be thinking about this. He leaves them with the greatest of conundrums. It's like what we're about to attack him for, that threefold, three-pronged pitchfork we were going to slow him with. They're not true. They're just not true. So God sovereignly creates this man Paul every step he took 
every opportunity and desire he had and was allowed to fulfill where he's born, the, the parentage that he had in Tarsus and Cilicia, to the opportunity to study under the finest teacher at the time, Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, all of these things are orchestrated by whom? Is that just Paul's dumb luck? Is that just Paul being well-connected? No. This is the sovereignty of God. Something we're opposed to just because we want to be independent. In our fallen state, we're opposed to that. That's why a few churches might, might teach on this or might, might not uh, draw this out, say, for instance, on a passage like this. This is God's sovereignty manifested clearly in the presentation of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing less. Now, I want to break down a verse with you so that you can see this. There's four clauses here in this verse. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We give reference to it quite a bit. Let's look at it in a new way, and let's put it under the microscope a little bit because I want you to see God's sovereignty in all the details of what he's created in Paul and in you and I in terms of who we are and what our experiences have been. Now, look at this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship... Clause one, created in Christ Jesus for good works, clause two, which God prepared beforehand, clause three, that, purpose clause, that we should walk in them. For we are, is how it starts. For we are, present, active, indicative, eternally present, always active, truth, of certainty. This is a reality. You are his workmanship. I am not my own. I am not my own. I am a sum total, and I want you to remember this, of what he allows and what he disallows. And so why do we punish ourselves? I really thought this would happen. I really thought I could do this. I really thought this is what God wanted me to do. And you run up into a wall. And, and we have to be careful, don't we? Because we could be tempted to be bitter toward whom? Huh. Bitterness towards God is thinking that he got something wrong providentially. By the way, worry is thinking that God might do something wrong. Think about it. Embrace this doctrine like you've never embraced any doctrine in your life. And you will stand just as bold as the Apostle Paul. You have to if you're going to survive as a Christian. If you're going to function in the role that he's given you and I as evangels in a, in a dying planet in the darkness of the hour, we're going to have to embrace God's sovereignty. And it's clear in the text. This is one verse from Ephesians, isn't it? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we're created in Christ Jesus for. So he saved me so that I can produce in my life those things that would be determined by the sovereign that are good, <laughs> that account for eternity, that'll survive the final fire. They won't be the wood, hay, and stubble that burns up They'll be the precious gems that we carry on with joy to glory. His workmanship is a beautiful word. I mention this a lot because I love it. 
It's poema. Poema. Now you should all know by now, if you've been with me for a while, what English word we get from that. Thank you. Poem. You, you are his poema. You are, necessarily are, present active indicative. No getting out of it. If you belong to Christ, this is you. You are his poema. You are his workmanship, a creation, something that he produced. It's not something you made, is the point. You are his detailed, well-written sonnet. More beautiful and more detailed than even Bill Shakespeare could write. That's you. Who needs some phony baloney, culturally generated cult of self-esteem? Do you know who you are? There is no one else like you. There never will be. That's the amazing thing. Never was, never will be. Not just currently. You are his production. You mean all of it? Yeah, all of it. He knows your limitations. He appointed them. He knows your failings. He knows just how far you can go. He set those parameters. I have looked before me. I have looked behind me. Psalmist writes, and, and I... He's looking all around him. God is there. He can't see God, but it's God moving him. God directing, God orchestrating. And the poetes, that's the poet. He's the producer. He's the doer. Is the definition of that word, poetes. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. It reminded me of John 15, right? The vine and the branches, which says clearly in verse 5 and 8, I'll limit us to that this morning. I am the vine and you are what? The branches. Whoever abides, what? In me. That's the key. Because that's what it says in Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus. You're his. This is a possession term but not one that's creepy. It's the best of possession. He, he controls and possesses you. You're his. For the purpose of good works. Who abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do just a couple of things. You can do what? Nothing. You can't do anything. Anything of any value that would qualify, as the context shows, as fruit. Or over to Ephesians 2, or good works. Same thing. The recapturing of Christ's image in us. That's what he wants back. Amen. He wants his son back in a multiplicity of people that he calls his family. That he says, these are mine. These are my own. These are the brothers and sisters of my son, Jesus Christ. See, Paul understood all of this. How else will you stand? No wonder we withhold the gospel. No wonder we stammer and stutter. No wonder we just let ourselves get occupied in all of the other busy work that we have. Our lives are so busy. They are. Whose life, in, would you raise your hand? Whose life isn't busy? Like crazy busy. Don't point at the retired people. They'll go out and get a job. What's the matter with you? And verse 8 says, 
the important reason why he's doing this. By this, my father is glorified. He's glorified in seeing his son in you. How is he seeing his son in me if I'm stammering or I'm, I'm avoiding giving the gospel? If, he says in another place, if you're ashamed of me before men, do you even want to finish the rest of it? It's scary. I will be ashamed of you in heaven. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you follow me in life, and you seek to walk by the Spirit, you will manifest His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and you will engage in good works, good deeds. You will just do that, and it won't be for your benefit. It'll be for the glory of God. Titus 2, 11 to 14, give us a good peek into what our life is like, what's been secured for us, and how. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So, Paul threw that word in there when he's saying the same thing as he did to the Ephesians in 2.10. He threw the word zealous. So we're not just to, you know what, when I get around to it, oh, that's right, I told so-and-so at the church that I would do this, or I told so-and-so I would do that. And If it's a burden, if it's an agony, we got some work to do, don't we, you and I? It should be something we're zealous to do. Would you step up and say, I love that Old Testament expression, right? Moses, Moses, or Eli, or no, um, Samuel, Samuel. What, what is, what's he say? Here I am. Is that what we say when he calls us? When we know in our heart there's some good opportunity, good work, or an opportunity to give the gospel? Is that us stepping up? Here I am. Thank you for choosing me. We're tempted to grumble, aren't we? This, these good works, they've already been prepared for you and I. Isn't that what the text says in Ephesians 2.10? Which were prepared beforehand. This means to create, to preordain something, to, to... See, here's the thing. God's creativity is first born in his mind. He thinks things and he brings them into existence. That's how it works. That's why Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, famous painting that we have hanging in our living room that Barbara painted for me. You see God reaching down and creating Adam like this, right, with the fingers, and there's a point that Michelangelo made to have the central feature of that painting being God's finger in Adam's. That's the clearest part. It's the central focus of the painting which gives it promise. Our prominence, and it's important that they aren't touching. And they're not. Because God isn't some reproducing amoeba. He is absolutely otherly, but he creates something that bears his image and likeness to whatever degree he, he has in mind. Well, while he's coming in, you see the 
cherubim all around him, right, when he's reaching down, creating Adam. But there's another creature right up under his arm. Now, who is that? It's beautiful. It's glorious. The look on that creature's face looking down at Adam, the pensive look, the apprehension. That's Eve. Why is she there? Because she's still a thought in his mind. She hasn't been created yet. You have to understand how God creates because you and I are the same. It is first conceived in the mind, the things that we end up doing. That's why we guard the mind with all diligence from out of that flow everything in your life, right? Proverbs 4.23. So that's the idea. He's created, he's had all of these things in mind for the Apostle Paul and you and I beforehand. That reminded me of a number of verses. I'll give you a couple as we move along here. It reminded to remind you of the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah 1, chapter 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. What? He's, think Eve. He's not even born yet. Well, neither is she. I knew you. And believe me, folks, This is the most profound term of relational intimacy that the Bible has to offer. Adam knew his wife and it produced a child. I knew you. I loved you. You are mine. How do you feel now? I am his and he is mine. And he's telling this to the prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So I had in mind this prophet role. I set you apart. All that's going to happen because you belong to me. So when we come out of the womb, we grow up and we fulfill these roles. Isn't it seem silly that we fret and fuss then? When we serve a sovereign God who appointed all of these things before the world even began. I remember having dinner with a a couple years ago that used to be in our church and and we were discussing salvation and when that actually takes place justification and all of that and she asked me she said well uh when do you when when how when was i saved i don't know when did when did god set you apart if you belong to him he will save you And so we fret and fuss over those we love. If they belong to him, they will be saved. We don't give up on the means that he calls us to. We pray for them. We appeal to them. But now we can do that without any pressure because of this idea of God's sovereignty. You see, it's God's appointment for his glory's sake. But listen to this. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What are the nations? What are the nations? What's another word for the nations? The Gentiles. Did they miss that? The ones who were trying to kill Paul? Wow, in a big way. Or did they know, and they had such a prearranged agenda they were, and that's what created the murder in their hearts. I don't know. Listen to God's word to Isaiah in chapter 49, 1 to 6. 
Listen to this. This is great. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. You thought your mother gave you your name. All those wonderful Scottish names. No, they came from God. You were just the instrument. Isn't that something? He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. Who's he talking about? God. See, with God's servants that are now in the permanent record of the Old and New Testament, they have no qualms at, at proclaiming who's responsible for what, who they are and what they're doing. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. It is again that my salvation, my salvation, may reach the end of the earth. That's sovereignty, folks. Sovereignty and salvation. All of these things I'm reading to you, I would like you to remember, are something that Paul fully embraced and we would do well to embrace ourselves. If we did, we would be more free to do some of the things that the Apostle Paul did in the light of, or in the midst of opposition. We have to understand his sovereignty. And so Paul did. He mentioned that in, first, in Galatians chapter 1, 15 and 16. Listen to this. He's recounting how he got to where he is. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Perfectly in keeping with the Old Testament prophets and what they prophesied, isn't it? Why do they want to kill him? Verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. As I said, this is the Aramaic that was used at the time by the Jews in Israel. So the same crowd that wanted to kill him only moments ago is stopping and being quiet to hear him address them as brothers and fathers. That's got their attention. What can we say that will get their attention by way of connection with them? So in so doing, he's making this connection with them through speaking in the native, la, uh, the native language and referring to them. It's like you're calling this, these people that you're with and among and that you, maybe you knew in the past and say you go back home 
and they know of your change, that you are now something of a religious nut job, right? Yeah. So you can see how you can adopt this. Look, I'm from here. You know me. I grew up with you. We speak the same language, Wisconsinese, right? Which is a a strange foreign language, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I understand the culture there, don't you? Yeah. We had another couple here. They're in Florida now. We're we're working on forgiving them (laughs) for moving. That we're from, the husband's from Green Bay. She's from Krivitz, and it's like, there's a whole culture that we understand being from Wisconsin. You start there. Hey, look, because they think you're some kind of a, right? When, when people start rumors or some rumor goes around, it always gets legs with exaggerations and the accusations become assumptions. Remember that? Exaggerations and accusations eventually ferment into assumptions. Well, we just assumed We had heard that, right? Fill in the blank. So mark how Paul connects with these people. Verse 3, and he said, I am a Jew. He says a lot in verse 3 that we'll just break down very quickly. I am a Jew, number one, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I'm just like you. Only he's recognized the Messiah has come. He's a completed Jew. And there are many there that day, but they've been persuaded. These are are Jews from Asia who didn't know Christ or who rejected Christ and there are those who are Christian who were Jews that still venerate the law and the temple and all of those things. And so the the Jews the Asian Jews have every all of them stirred up. That's that's the crowd that's upset here. He's a he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. They're educated at the feet quite literally because the the teacher would sit up on a platform and all the students would sit on the floor. Aren't you glad we're Not still doing that. According to the strict manner of the law. Oh, by the way, according to the strict manner of law, you know who Gamaliel is, right? They know who Gamaliel is. I mean, he's the disciple of of Hillel, for goodness sake. That's the venerated uh, rabbi through through the ages. So he's got their attention in the strict manner of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he's aware of the grievances against him. By the way, we see that in verse 20 of chapter 20, or verse, yeah, verse 20 of chapter 21. He knows that they're zealous for the law. I mentioned that. That's part of what's got them worked up. He also knows that they think that he's against the Jewish race, which is crazy. We talked about that in a previous sermon. Law of Moses, not true. Verse 28 of chapter 21. So these are the same cha- uh, charges that are they leveled against Stephen. 
So his participation in the vow, in the Nazarite vow that James and the elders had suggested, failed. So now this is plan B. This is plan two. He's going to give a verbal apologia. He's going to make a verbal defense in their language, making sure they understand, I am a Jew. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 4 through 6, he says this. He gives his uh, sort of background on his resume here. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. They were the most conservative. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Where were all of you? I was marching up the Damascus Road by myself. I was fuming. I maybe had a few other people with me, but where were all of you? I persecuted the way. That's Christianity. Persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I lived a mosaic life, if you will. I lived by the law of of Moses, and no one could refute that. Wow. He's taken away all the handles we thought we had to beat him with. They're gone. Man, you can't get a more impressive background than that. God sovereignly creates. He wrote his credentials. He wrote his life story. He knows exactly who he is. So then we fuss over, well, I'll never be this because I don't have enough that. Been there? Yeah. Of course you have. It's called being human. But if we would just reflect on this, what a comfortable, peaceful, contented life we would have. It's one that he has available for us in the midst of wars and rumors of wars. So similar to Jesus, but by no means sinless, Paul's credentials absolutely handily refute their accusations without a doubt. He's born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So he is a born of uh, the Jews of the dispersion, of the diaspora, because this is a uh, Roman province, Cilicia, whose capital is Tarsus. And Tarsus was second only to Athens and Alexandria in terms of culture and education. So they can't get a hold of anything. This is one smart dude. One cultured, smart, and on top of that, of course, he has Roman citizenship by birthright. Amazing. God made it so every single charge would be false. And he's speaking them to them in their own clear language. Who else faced that? Who else could they not? They had to lie about Jesus. That's right. This is the perfect man for the job because we have a perfect God who orchestrated this before time began. It's quite remarkable. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel, uh, in chapter 5, verse 34, you remember he showed up there when they were dealing with John and Peter and the rest of the apostles in chapter 5, way back, and he gives them that ominous, wise principle, if this is of men, it will fail. If it's not, you may find yourself contending with God. Very wise, very wise man. Remember that? But in verse 34, Gamaliel, here's how he's defined there, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. So here's Paul saying, that, that was my mentor. That was who I studied under. Paul said to King Agrippa later on, when we get to chapter 26 of Acts, he's going to say, my manner of life, verse 4, chapter 26, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. What are they accusing me of here? You can't get more Jewish than me. You can't get more mosaic in what I believe, in, in the law of Moses. He could challenge anyone. He was a conservative Pharisee who lived as one, fought as one, zealous against anything that threatened that at the time it was Christianity. You guys are more zealous than me? You, those of you who are trying to kill me? It's, my manner of life was known by all the Jews. He says, according to the strict manner of the law, in verse 3, of our fathers. So he's an educated, devout, zealous, conservative Pharisee who's also a Roman citizen. Is this God's man or what? And he's got the Romans there who are like respecting him for the fact that he's an educated man who has Roman citizenship and they're about to make a big mistake, right? as far as his Roman citizenship is concerned. We'll see that when we get to it. So he's got their respect, and he's got the people's respect so far. He's the perfect man for this. God, I believe, in cases that suit his purposes, will put a crowd or a mob or whatever in a position where they have no merit to their charges. No accusations. That's why we're to live a righteous life. That becomes our breastplate, Ephesians 6. Because they can't, they can't knock us down because there's no merit to the charges they give us. You hear some of the charges that they make against Christians and you're thinking, that's not us. We're a goofy bunch, but that's not us. We're only goofy because we're human. So here continues to make an unmistakable identification with him. I'm one of you, furthering his credibility. He says in verse 5 of, of 26 of Acts, they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. They know that. They know that. So these are the defenses that are coming up. You have to go through and you have to kind of pick the different pieces and bring them together to make this case. So he's zealous for God, it finishes with, zealous for God as all of you are this day. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This way, this is one of the earliest designations of Christianity. Of course, Christ in John 14 and verse 6 says, I am the way. I am the way. He is the only hope, the only path to heaven. 
to eternal glory with God is through Christ. He persecuted them to the death, it says. What they failed to do to him, listen to the sort of twisted irony, what they failed to do to him by beating him to death, he actually succeeded with some Christians in being an instrument of them being imprisoned and put to death. He held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. He saw them literally put to death what they were trying to do and God protected. Wow. To King Agrippa in chapter 26, again, verse 10, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. How would you like to live with the things that you had done? I live with some pretty difficult things, but nowhere near what he has had to live with, what he did before Christ came and saved his life. Being responsible for the death of the believers that Jesus died for. It's sure had a humbling effect on him. We can see that in his writing. Acts chapter 8, this is when he was still on the, on the hunt. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, when he was still Saul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house by house, he dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Uh, by the way, religious zealotry does not discriminate. Men, women, doesn't make any difference. My ancestors, the covenanters, they hauled children off. Men, women, and children threw them into prison and killed a great number of them for their faith in Christ. It doesn't discriminate. Wants all of them dead. Anybody who's going to represent the way, anybody who's going to take up the mouth of that Christ needs to be stopped. But this is a, a child. It doesn't matter. This is a woman who has a family. It doesn't matter. This is an old man. It doesn't matter. Equity there, yeah? The whole council, he says in verse 4, or I'm sorry, in verse 5. Oh, I'm, I need to read verse 5. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So everybody that's still on the Sanhedrin knows, that was at, on the Sanhedrin at the time, knows. They can bear testimony for him. From them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. High priest, of course, was Caiaphas. He held that office from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. So this is Caiaphas that he's referring to. The whole council, of course, is the 70 plus 1. The 70 mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees plus the high priest. And they had the authority alone to give authority to Paul by way of letter. Go get them. He was their pit bull. He went out after them to what we would say what the word we use in our uh, legal terms is to extradite them. He could go and he could arrest them and take them chained back to Jerusalem for trial before the Sanhedrin. Acts 9 then, he isn't quite converted yet. 
Verse 1 and 2, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Galatians 1, 23, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's the word that was being spread about Paul. He's now preaching that, that religion, that cult, that he was trying to destroy before. So, he's fully connected himself to them by way of his credentials that God sovereignly appointed, created before time began. The next time we will go into part two, which is he tells the story then of his conversion. And that's what we do. We make our connections first as much as we can without being condescending or anything else. We, we ingratiate ourselves to the people that we're trying to win to Christ because after all, we love them, right? We make all those points of connections. I was just like you. Here's the ways that I can connect with you. Here's the way that I can identify with you. I'm, just, I'm not some crazy cult. I'm not the Egyptian that the tribune thought I was that led 4,000 and, and said that he could uh, speak a word and the walls of Jerusalem would fall over. And that crazy guy ran off. And, the, and actually, the, the Roman authorities had killed 400 of them. No, I'm not him. This is who I am. And that's exactly what we must do. But then they're going to need an explanation, aren't they? So what happened? And that's what he masterfully does. He goes through his testimony. And we'll have to take this up next time. Before we know Christ, though we can see physically, we are blind to spiritual realities. And when the light comes and we can see Christ, we are now blind to the world and we can see truth. We can see the reality of what He's called us to. We can see Him spiritually so that we are able to follow Him. How do we follow Him? You see me reaching for my Bible? This is how you follow him. It isn't mystical. It isn't a mystery. It's mysterious. Don't know how he does it, but he does it. He leads us through his word. He asks the question, Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? That's a question that must necessarily go together. Always. Who are you, Lord? And then we find ourselves answering the question that Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Who, who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the universal, most important question to put to all of humanity for all time. Who is this man who's called the Christ? But what we fail at, what we struggle at, what we linger with is what Paul said immediately after that. What would you have me do, Lord? 
Because somebody who's called to be a disciple, somebody who's called to follow Christ will ask that question. And he or she will follow Christ. Let me close with something that Alexander McLaren said. When a man has a glimpse of Jesus exalted to heaven, this is referring, of course, to the conversion of Paul, and is summoned by him to give a reason for his life of alienation, that life looks very different from what it did when seen by dimmer light. I see my former life, folks, in a whole different way than when I lived it. He brought me sight, and now I can see. I can see him, but moreover, I can see who I was and what he saved me from, what he died for. McLaren, when Jesus comes to us, his first work is to set us to judge our past. And no man can muster up a respectable answer to the question, why? Why did you live like that? Could you answer that question, those of you who are saved as an adult and lived a pagan life beforehand? There's no good explanation why. He says why. For all sin is unreasonable. There's no adequate explanation for it. He's right. He goes on. And nothing but obedience to him can vindicate itself in his sight. Shows you're following him. You stop obeying. He's turning around and he's saying, where are you? Where are you? He's going to come for you. He's going to come after you because he loves you. You belong to him. The test of true belief in the ascended Jesus is to submit the will to him. To be chiefly desirous of knowing his will and ready to do it. Who art thou, Lord, should be followed by what shall I do? End quote. These are the realities. The world has got you bound up with counterfeits. They're fake. It's a fake. What we wrap our hearts around here is a fake. It's a mirage. You bought into a lie from the master deceiver. And the light comes on and we realize we bought into a counterfeit. 1 John 1, 1 and 3 and we're done. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the, His Son Jesus Christ. He allowed a generation of people that's, that encompass, that fills the historical book of the church called Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles who literally saw Him. They, most of them saw Him literally before they killed him. So John is saying, this one, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we lived with him, we proclaim him to you. You must see him. That question lingers. It hangs in the air over our heads today. Who do you say that I am? And if you say you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. Hallelujah. But then your life belongs to him. What would you have me to do? And that, my friends, constitutes the rest of the time he's apportioned to us on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Your word is so rich with truth, so helpful. Thank you for the life of the apostle. Lord, we see you through all of these things. We see your, the activity of your sovereignty in every jot and tittle, in every line, in every moment of not only Paul's life, but our own. And would we, O oh Lord, be so contented, so in possession of that doctrine, of your sovereign care, of your wisdom, convinced of your wisdom, and convinced of your love and your care. Oh, we could face a great army against us, I would suggest, as Paul has faced so many in opposition in a number of times, nearly losing his life, certainly being beaten and rejected. Lord, we don't know what lies ahead for us, even as war breaks out in Eastern Europe. Lord, we depend entirely on you. And may we have just that, possess that confidence in you and in your sovereignty that you would be glorified in all that we do here on this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.